What if everyone thought you were crazy? And it turns out, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Wonder with us. This is Wonder With Us. It is still the world's greatest podcast. Talking about the Twilight Zone. Specifically, episode 21, Mirror Image. This episode originally aired February 26th, 1960. It was directed by John Bram, a whopping 78 directing credits to his name, 12 of which were the Twilight Zone. And written, as always, usually, almost all the time, by Rod Serling. Uh, film editor was Bill Mosher. Sound effects editor was Van Allen James, who had 73 credits as sound editor yeah. under his belt. Quite a few. Which you, uh, you brought up while, while we were watching the episode, the importance that music and ambience play in this episode. Specifically sound effects. Uh, more so than your average episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Up to this point. Going for that almost hardcore, what we would now know as jump scare effect, kind of before it was a yeah thing. the the kind of eerie buildups without actually building up, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of using ambient background sound as uh, leading the emotions of the viewer. Yeah, kind of kind of leading leading into what's about to happen. Uh, what's IMDb got to say about this one? IMDb says. While waiting in a bus station, Millicent Barnes has a strange feeling that her doppelganger is trying to take over her life. I find that to be entirely inaccurate. I agree. Uh, It's not abnormal that I don't like the IMDb uh, breakdowns of the episodes, the synopses. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not abnormal. I don't usually like them. Well, they're usually succinct, if not a little bit boring. Sure, but they're usually accurate, Mm -hmm. at least. And this one is not. Not. Apart from the fact that she is, in fact, waiting in a bus station. And her name is, as far as we can tell, Millicent Barnes. And she does have a strange feeling. But that is where it ends. Yeah, that's where that ends. Um, It's not until almost the end of the episode that she has any inkling that it might be a doppelganger that she's dealing with. Right. Uh, So I I don't particularly like the inaccuracy or the spoiler of that. Yeah, the um, opening scene is Millicent in a bus station. The camera initially kind of zooms in on her and then pans to her suitcase where it lingers for a few minutes. And then she has her first interaction with the ticket man, who we will talk so much about, um, before things start getting really weird. Yeah, so this, this episode is a really good concept that I think was done very well. Sure. Um, I, I take a little bit of issue with some of the interactions she had with other characters in the episode. I would venture to say most. Yeah, so some of it I can chalk up to being a different time where we just, as a society, had different standards 
as far as what was and wasn't okay. Um, that will be a re- reoccurring theme as mm. we watch through these early episodes. Obviously, it was, uh, as much as I hate to sound like an old man, it was a different time. Sure. Doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it okay. No, but it was a different time. Blatant, like, sexism throughout this episode. Yeah, there, there's pretty, pretty blatant sexism throughout the episode. And my understanding was that this episode was written at least partially by a female writer. Yeah. Um, although she's not credited right. anywhere that I've, I've been able to find. That tracks. Um, it, she is... Her name was given at the, at the end of the last episode. Yep. Uh, although I, I do now don't remember what her name was. Um, I'm actually... I'm going to see if I can pull that up real quick. Let's um, pull that up and cut that in. Uh, do me a favor and yeah. go ahead and run over... Uh, tell me, tell me about Vera Miles while I'm trying to figure find this. So our leading lady in this episode is Vera Miles. Um, it's quite a bit about her. She uh, portrayed the character of Millicent Barnes in this episode. She was born August twenty third, nineteen twenty nine, in Boise City, Oklahoma. I didn't know there was a Boise City in Oklahoma. I also did not know there was a Boise City in Oklahoma. Although she grew up in Kansas. And a couple things in note. She did win the title of Miss Kansas in 1948. And that recognition actually earned her her first series of small roles in Hollywood films and a few TV series upon her move to Hollywood the following year. So those things kind of happened in sequence. Um, She she was beautiful. Um, And that led to her getting some parts. Uh, She was notably a favorite of both directors Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford. In fact, Hitchcock had Vera under a five-year personal contract uh, where he dubbed her the new Grace Kelly upon Grace's exit of Hollywood. Uh, she was cast interesting to sorry uh, if we can if we can uh, sit on that one for a second sure um, well for starters I uh, there there is nothing that I can easily find regarding uh, anybody else writing this episode I'll, I will have to go back and watch because wasn't it 20 at the end of it was at the end of 20 yeah where Rod, where pops Rod up. mentions that he he is was, not known for writing. It was almost an apology, almost, that he gave. Like, he's not given to writing roles for women. It's not a thing he can do, successfully, he says. Yeah, excuse me, I believe he says something to the effect of uh, it's not a skill of his or he's not qualified to write specifically for a female audience. Yeah. And that's why they they brought in an additional writer for this episode. Uh, But again, I don't don't remember what her name was, and I'm going to, it's going to bug me. Um, now back to uh, Hitchcock and his his contract with with Vera Miles, mm-hmm. um, stating that she was the new Grace Kelly. Uh, some of our listeners may not be aware if they're not mildly obsessed with 1950s cinema uh, that Grace Kelly was the like she she was the shit. Mm-hmm. Like, to have Grace Kelly in a film meant your film was going to succeed. Yes. She was the Hollywood darling. Yeah, and, and she is... I, I would I would love to at some point do an episode or a something on Grace Kelly. Cause I agree. Because the information available for her life was insane, including the fact that she was the princess of Monaco. Yeah. Yeah, so Grace Kelly is a... Excuse me, is a fascinating 
uh, bit of Hollywood history herself, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd love to do some. I kind of want to just on her at some do point, a but. synopsis of the golden age of Hollywood. I think that would be fun. What do you think? So I would. I mean, I would be. <clears throat> I would definitely be down to do that. I think. I think that would be absolutely fascinating maybe a maybe a bonus episode or something where sure. we and i don't think we should limit ourselves like limiting yourself to three is that is just it's it's gonna leave so many people out of the justice that needs to be for that kind of a topic but that's fair. that's that's a different topic for a different time we'll yeah. we'll discuss that if if that's something you're interested in let us know uh hit us up on the gram if that's up yet it's probably not if not wwu cast at gmail.com will get straight to us. Obviously, we have the Facebook. Do not use Twitter. Like, <laughs> and not just like, not just when messaging us. Like, just just don't use Twitter. It's bad. Like, you don't you don't go to the La Brea tar pits and jump in. <laughs> if you want to look at it from a safe distance with a rail between you and it, I completely understand. We all love a circus. Don't jump in. I'm it's not add, worth it. I'm gonna get back to Barry Miles. That's okay. Um, so, essentially, with Hitchcock calling her the new Grace Kelly, that was a phenomenal compliment right off the bat. Um, she was cast to be the lead in Vertigo, 1958, but withdrew due to pregnancy, which would be a common scene in her latter years of acting. Um, she, she had many babies. Um, Ford, Good for her. Yeah, right? Good for her. I guess. Ford cast her opposite John Wayne and James Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962. And she's probably most known for her supporting role as Lila Crane, opposite Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane in Hitchcock's Psycho 1960. After 45 years in the industry, Vera Miles retired in 1955 with a whopping 162 acting credits to her name. And she now apparently is still alive and resides in Palm Desert, California. Uh, so just to clarify, that is, uh, she retired in 1995. Right. Did I say 65? You said 55. Oh, oops. Yeah. No, 1995. Yeah, thank Which you Which is <clears throat> not unimpressive. You know, 162 acting credits. A lot of them were uh, co-starring roles. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she's in Palm Desert. What's not to like about that? I guess, if you like the desert and sun. Yeah, no, let's not get into which of our states has the uh, better dry, not always raining and making me sad enough to find a rock to bang my head against. (laughs) Uh, Next, we have Joseph Hamilton, who plays the unnamed dickhead bus ticket, bus station ticket agent. Um, He was born in 1899 in D.C., died in 1965 uh, in the city of Orange, which is not the same thing as Orange County. No. I'm from California. Never heard of it. Uh, he started his acting career pretty late in life. <clears throat> uh, had 79 acting credits. Best known for his role as Chester Jones in 11 episodes of the Andy Griffith show between 61 and 64. Uh, he also made appearances in Gunsmoke because I assume he was legally obligated to do so <laughs> and a few other lesser-known series. We have... Uh something I intentionally wanted to bring up because we have a leading lady in this episode, and so I figured it was important to also add the other lady that appears in this episode. It is miraculous that we have two. It never happens, almost. 
I mean, we're only 20-some-odd episodes in. Give it time. Naomi Stevens portrays the washroom attendant, or as we might know her, custodian. She was born November 1925 in New Jersey, and she died in January of 2018. So not long ago. Yeah. She is best known for her roles in The Apartment, 1960, Valley of the Dolls, 1967, uh, Hard Times in 1975. She was primarily cast in small roles, like usually playing someone's ethnic mother, relative, neighbor, and often providing comedic relief, uh, which she doesn't do in this episode. No, not at all. It's, it's very much outside of uh, her, her known wheelhouse. Role. Yeah. She has a total of 115 acting credits to her name. Now, before I move on mm-hmm. uh, to, to Martin Milner slash Paul Grinstead slash... Creepy guy. Creepy American white guy. I very much liked Naomi's role in yeah. this episode. Uh, I think it, it, it gave something to the episode that I think would have been notably lacking. Sure. Um, and I'm sure somebody else could have played the part. I absolutely. It, it's not a. It's not a horribly uh, impressive part. There's it's, but it's. It is key to, the development of this episode. Yeah, I was and just going to ask very you. Well. Even though it was small, would you say it was significant? I, I would. Entirely. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I I do not think this episode would have, hit the way it did. Uh, had that role not been written and portrayed so well. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that she wasn't exactly typecasted. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad I'm glad they didn't bring her in as uh, comedic relief. I don't think it would have worked. Uh, well, and I, she wasn't. She didn't seem to have like a fake accent or anything like that. Yeah, no, there there was nothing that came minor. across as overly insensitive or shitheadish. Oh, thank you, baby girl. Our our dog has joined the podcast by crop dusting the room. What a day! That's awesome. Uh, moving on to Martin Milner. Uh, again, he portrays Paul Grinstead. Uh, he was born December of thirty one in Michigan, Detroit specifically. Uh, died September of twenty fifteen. Had one hundred and twelve acting credits to his name. Uh, was best known for his longstanding role as Officer Pete Malloy on Adam. Adam twelve. I was hoping that's a typo. I've never heard of it. Um, which ran, uh, his roles ran between 68 and 75. And it is rumored that his physical appearance inspired the look of the original Green Lantern, which is a hard thing to fact check, but very interesting nonetheless. Um, I could see it. I could definitely see that being reality. You you He's, would know, because my knowledge is so limited on... Original Green Lantern comics in general. So, I, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and say that I would definitely know. Um, I can say that my introduction to the Green Lantern was during the run of Hal Jordan, um, and Hal Jordan was created in '59. So the time frame would make sense. Sure. I don't personally see a resemblance there. He does resemble a couple of the Green Lanterns, although most of the Green Lanterns had a very specific look that they were going for. It was a strong chin, full head of hair, muscular, working class looking white guy. So like Captain America? 
uh, yeah, a, a similar build was a lot of it, although they, they moved away from it, obviously, with uh, John Stewart and a few other of the Lanterns. But, yeah, no, for, for a lot of the... A handful of the Green Lanterns, I could definitely see that early comic book superhero vibe about him. Sure. sure. Although it's not portrayed particularly in this episode, <laughs> um, which is good because that would have been out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, he is my least favorite character in this episode, and that is a short list with a lot of contenders. Sure. Because um, I don't like any of the characters in this episode, particularly. Um, okay, so we're so, starting off with a Marvel rating. <laughs> so the the washroom attendant role played by Naomi Stevens sure. um, and Vera Miles as Millicent Barnes are both characters that, that I enjoy in this episode. That's good, because one of them is prominent. Yes, one of them is obviously the lead, and one of them plays a... a a very important role in the episode. I can't think of another character in this episode that I like. Is it because they have, like, redeeming qualities? So, I don't even know that that's the case in in reality. Because, so the washroom attendant is there. Sure. There is no character development. She She is there to deliver... Now, that character is there to play a role in furthering the story. To fill in some space. Right. It, it's it's filling in some some otherwise missing information that is very important for the episode to continue. Would you also say that she sort of um, provo- provokes some empathy in the viewer in terms of this? You're kind of seeing what Millicent is going through through, through, some, through somebody else's eyes. She's also the first character to interact with Millicent that doesn't... Uh, Shut her down. Yeah, there, she, there, is, there is a pity mm-hmm. in, in her reaction or her, her interactions with Millicent in a way that there isn't with any of the other characters. Sure. All of the other characters have an immediate you're crazy, you're off your rocker, right. you're you bumped your head is referenced a couple of times and and the uh washroom attendant there there's some genuine some concern and some pity for Millicent's well-being yeah she's the first one to ask if she's okay in that in that bathroom scene right and and to be fair she Millicent hasn't interacted with a lot of people in this episode she doesn't right uh you have the bus ticket clerk uh good guy Grinstead the elderly couple the very brief interaction with the elderly couple and then the interaction with the cops mm-hmm. at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. None of which are good episodes, are good interactions. Right. They're all really negative interactions to somebody who is having a mental crisis. Mm-hmm. They um, feel really yucky. Yeah, they all feel real shitty. Except for her interactions with with the, the washroom attendant, mm-hmm. which feels like a human talking to another human. And I, th- I think that is, I think that's why I like those two characters, while sure. the rest of the characters in the episode, I, I really, like, if they were all, if all of those characters were on a bus together and it caught on fire, I wouldn't lose sleep. That's fair. That's, that's really more than fair. Um, so let's, let's discuss this episode, because we, we've, we've mentioned some, some key parts. Yep. Uh, but I don't think we've gone into a whole lot. 
So maybe like from the initial focusing on the suitcase and there's a reason for that. Yeah, so the suitcase plays an important role. From from the jump, from yeah, the beginning from of that. From the episode, opening scene, for sure. Where that is the first interaction that or that leads to the first interaction that Millicent has with the bus ticket agent, in that she walks up and asks for the time, asks what time the bus to Cortland is arriving. Yep. And he perfectly polite. Sure. Perfectly reasonable. Yep. Understandable question when you're waiting on a bus. Right. And his response is just overtly harsh for it, it an initial hostile. for an initial interaction. Yes. He straight up tells her, I told you before, it'll get here when it gets here. And then she looks over, and we'll get back to that interaction because I know you have some stuff to say about that. But nothing good. She looks over and sees her suitcase in like the baggage check area. And she's confused by this because she knows she definitely left it by her chair. Didn't right, know why she it was just there. walked away from it. Right. But moments before. And then noticed it somewhere she didn't put it. And that's where this all kind of begins. Now, th- her interactions with uh, unnamed dickhead, again, I believe is how he's credited, um, his hostility from the jump is abrasive. Like, it is, it is abrasive to view. And while they, they take some time to explain why he is being abrasive and why he's, <clears throat> excuse me, why he's got such a short temper with her, I don't feel like it's ever justified. No. Like, it's, there is no point in which, okay, so the implication mm-hmm. is that Millicent has already gone to the front counter and asked when the bus is going to be there. A couple of times. A couple of times. And his reaction to that, the time that we are introduced to it, is a hostile, like, almost, if she had a manager to complain to, this dude would. Mm-hmm. Like, this mm-hmm. dude would pull his hair up into a bun and start screaming about her rights in McDonald's. Like... He'd go full Karen. Entirely. Mm-hmm. And it's just, there. there's no point at which his reaction to her feels justified. Sure. And I don't know if it was supposed to. I, I don't know if it was ever supposed to feel justified. If the goal it, was finding an actor who portrayed an amazing crotchety old man who just didn't give anything anymore to anyone. Right, just an entirely unlikable human being. nailed it. Entirely. And maybe, 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 that is proof that Joseph Hamilton is a great actor. Sure. Maybe it's proof that Rod and whoever else helped write this episode were fantastic writers. We know that Rod's a good writer. I don't know much about Joseph Hamilton. I know he plays this role very well. Mm-hmm. And it like he is now on my list with Umbridge. Oh no. As like I don't care that you're not the character you played in this thing. You are forever this person. I will never see your face and not hope that I get the opportunity to kick you in the head. Yeah. In your glasses. Froggy ass face. <laughs> There is a very strong sense of desperation in this episode. That builds. Continues. The entirety of the episode. Yeah. All through Millicent Barnes. Like, and I don't even think that there's an end to it. 
Because no, even no, at the end, it, it, can, it just leaves you yeah, in no, this her, state. Her sense of desperation never resolves. And I would say even transfers. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It, it, <laughs> yeah, not only does it not resolve, but it, it transfers over... To the good uh, guy. To... Oh, God, Grandstead, Paul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the end. Can we, uh, can we jump ahead a little bit? So, no. <laughs> uh, okay. If, if I recall correctly, the initial interaction is with the ticket agent. Yes. Millicent is already confused at this point because she's like, you've told me I've been here. I haven't been here. I'm just trying to figure out what time the bus is coming in. Then she goes to the restroom. And that is where she meets the custodian in the restroom. And she's, like, standing in the, like, with her back to the door. We see this interaction take place through a series of mirrors, which is a really cool, like... It's a really well-shot scene, for sure. Yeah. And uh, they have this really brief but compassionate interaction where she says, you know, I really don't think you're well. Let me get you a cold rag for your head. And this is the part where oh, I, I cringed I, I a little bit. I forgot about this. Because she, like, then reaches into her bucket, grabs up this rag, and mind you, she's this is taking place in a restroom. Right. If it were taking place in the lobby, I probably wouldn't have cringed so much. No, but we see her cleaning the sink. Yeah. So then she she does actually run the rag under the faucet mm-hmm. and wring it out, to be fair. Sure. Tries to hand it to her, and Millicent's like, mm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I don't need a rag. I need the world to stop ending. Right. So then she opens the door, and that's when we see that first, what I what I mentioned in the beginning of, like, that almost jump scare, mm-hmm. where the music is just this very loud, da-da, and she is, like, she sees herself sitting in her seat. In the mirror. In the mirror. And then she goes out of the bathroom. She closes the door, like, after she catches her breath. And she goes out, and she's, like, obviously she's not there because she's walking to her seat. But it's just this weird, like, ghost effect. And then that happens. She's freaked out. She sits down again. Her suitcase is gone. It's a reoccurring, like, that suitcase can't stay where she left it, ever. Yeah, no, it's it's jumping between next to her seat in the baggage claim back and at different seats like that that fucking suitcase is a bigger protagonist in this episode than (laughs) anything else and props to who was responsible for moving it because it moved a lot uh then she goes over to the older couple who i mean i didn't put them in our notes because they're they had like a three second part but they were both sleeping yep and she wakes them up as you do and, I mean, to be fair, they're very gracious about it. I wouldn't be. but they, No, they're actually very polite. She asked... Probably because they is, don't know how insane she is yet. Well, this is immediately after she saw herself in the mirror. Right. She goes out and she goes, did you see somebody sitting in my seat? And to said, the well, couple that was just sleeping. Right. So they're... Um, yes. <laughs> Good timing on her part. And they said, well, no, of course we didn't. We're sorry. And so she goes and she sits back down. And then... With a, with a wind through the door blowing through his blonde locks. His Blue very eyes greased. glinting <laughs> in the fluorescent <laughs> light bulbs. A ting of white off of his front tooth when he smiles. This douche cake. 
he walks into that room with such an air of good guy energy. Oh yeah. He is and a hero. Not, not the good kind of good guy energy. Not the I can trust this guy because he's a good human energy. He's very Gaston. He's very Gaston, and I don't think it's intentional. I think that is just like the vibe homie puts off. Yeah. Because it none of the written stuff feels like that's what he's trying to do. Right. It feels like he's trying to be a, you know, a condescending asshole dude, <laughs> that's incredibly sexist through his helpfulness. Well, and this is also viewed through our lens and not as it was then. Uh, again, again, when yes, it was fully it was acceptable a different time. At that time. Doesn't excuse it. It's not right. But it was a different time, and this was a. These were all socially acceptable interactions sure. between Millicent and Paul. I think Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul. Yeah, mm-hmm. Paul. Paul, good guy. <clears throat> as far as I know, all of the interactions between the two of them were perfectly reasonable for the time. It doesn't change the fact that viewing it from a twenty twenty three lens. Yeah, cringe from beginning. This to end. motherfucker can't can't do it. He spends probably an eighth of his time on screen being perfectly polite, a perfectly reasonable human being, and the rest of his time on screen being a condescending asshole without ever having any ill intent. Yeah. Yeah, that's the part that's frustrating. It's so fucking irritating. Yeah. Because you can watch him and know that, like, Paul's trying to be a good guy. But Paul is trying to be a good guy in the shittiest way possible. Yeah. And I don't... <clears throat> I don't want to blame uh, the actor. I don't want to blame Martin. I don't want to blame the writers. We've mentioned it before. It'll come up again. It was a different time. There were different standards. And it still doesn't make it okay. But we've mentioned it. It'll come up again. It was a different time. Yeah. And I don't know if watching this in 1961 would have... I don't know that I would have had this effect. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody watching it then would have reacted uh, in the way that I personally did to Paul, the Paul character. Yeah. I think I think you're right, and that may entirely be that I'm, I'm viewing this episode through a 2023 lens. Sure. And when I first viewed it, I viewed it through well, probably a 2014 lens. Right. Um, which even I would, would yeah, even then. Even 2014, shit was cringy. Yeah. But more so now because I feel like a lot more conversations are being had. Again, it's not it's not a political podcast. No, it's, it's, We're not going to go there. But, like, it's, it's I'll, more I'll prominent. I know you will. We won't go there. <laughs> it is, it so, is more prominent today, which makes it stand out more. significantly. More. It, it yeah. is like there's a glowing spotlight on it in the episode. Yeah. And it is, it's hard to get by. It's hard to get past for like, me, personally. I agree. He sits down next to her. Without asking if the seat was taken, he just kind of plops down. And his, I mean, if you read body language, his entire body language was towards her. You know? Yeah, no, it's very dude spreading his legs on a bus. Yeah. Like, it's just no Hard. fucking personal space. Hardcore, yeah. like, like, uber-masculine energy. Just, he introduces himself, and she introduces herself kind of hesitantly, which is which yeah, she, I thought was appropriate. Yeah, she's got other shit going on. And uh, she then, like, 
proceeds to tell him, well, I don't feel well. Um, and she, there, there is a point prior, just prior to Paul arriving where she's sitting there and she like puts her hand to her face and she's like, do I have a fever? Like she's internal, like you can hear the internal monologue that yeah, is no, going through her. She's definitely trying to process and she's doing it out loud because we're watching a TV show. Sure. She's like, am I, I don't have a fever. Am I, am I unwell? Like, I, I, I feel so strange. And she just kept saying that. Well, then she proceeds to kind of relay this to Paul. And he gets really concerned. And in his concern, he moves in a little bit closer. And they're just talking. And uh, then he starts asking her questions. Right? Are you asking me if that's right? I'm asking because I'm trying to remember. I'm gonna be honest. I I have blocked out a lot of their interactions because I was I don't I don't want to think about them. That's fair. I I I try not to let their interactions color this episode in a completely negative light because it would easily and because it easily could yeah and I I don't want that. Uh, it's it, this isn't the 16 millimeter shrine. Like this is a good episode. Sure. Mostly. Mostly. The the idea behind it creativity in which it was written is very good. Yes. And keep in mind, I'm going I'm to say this now because eventually it, it will probably come up. There are a lot of episodes of this show that address mental illness. Mm. And by address, I mean use it as a plot point, not sure. actually address it in any way, shape, or form. Right, not in a helpful way. Not in a helpful way, not even in a negative way. Or just in an informative like, way. It's certainly not in an informative way. But again, it's science fiction. Mm-hmm. It is not meant to be educational. But it's a topic that comes up without being directly referenced a lot. Um, in this one in particular, mm-hmm. very heavily. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it could be argued could be I don't think it should but it could be argued that that is a problem with this episode I don't think that was the intent and again intent doesn't make it okay but I do believe this was they were coming at this from a science fiction standpoint mostly due to the resolve uh, of Paul's uh, inclusion in the end (laughs) excuse me Um, but but it's worth noting that the majority of the episode has a very, uh, uh, what feels like a heavy emphasis mm-hmm. on on a potential mental illness, and that doesn't help right. any of the already outstanding issues that this particular episode has. I do believe they were trying to make a good point with the episode. I, I think they, they were trying to emphasize uh, specifically... Issues that women of the time could have been dealing with in a mm-hmm. way that they felt they safely could address. Absolutely. Um, but putting but it man, in, in the lens of something that they understood, so it was being filtered. It was definitely it was being heavily filtered in I the think, way that through, it was perceived. Yeah, uh, through the way it was perceived, probably through some network guidelines CBS and. CBS cares. What's that? CBS cares. Yeah, CBS. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so there, if you're going to watch this episode, and I, I think you should if you're listening to this podcast, I ask that you go into it not necessarily with an open mind, 
but certainly with an understanding that there are some fucking rough parts. Mm-hmm. There, there's some stuff in there that is just, that's just bad. Yeah. It's just, that's all there is to it. It's bad. Yeah. Uh, back on topic. I don't remember the the I'm specific just, interaction order between I'm Millicent and Paul. to encapsulate where Millicent brings up the thing about a parallel universe. And I don't remember at which point that happens, whether it's before or after the bus arrived. So I know she, I believe she addresses the idea of a parallel universe prior to the bus getting there. I believe she actually talks to Paul about it Mm -hmm. after the bus has arrived, although I'm going to fact check myself real quick. It's not actually been that long since I watched this episode. So, whatever the case, eventually... Oh, hey, Edwin Rand played the, the bus driver. I oh, know that's that. fun. I don't know who that is. Me neither, but his picture is very cowboyish. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so, they have this conversation. She brings up the idea of a doppelganger, except she doesn't call it a doppelganger. She talks about a parallel universe in which there are two of her that exist. And then, uh, at long last, the bus arrives. And Paul, being the gentleman that he was, grabs her suitcase, along with his own, and they head out to the bus, and he hands his ticket, she hands her ticket to the bus driver, and then she looks up at the window, and what does she see but herself sitting in the bus window? So creepily well done. Oh, yeah. The... I don't want to call it complacent. It's not complacent. It's that state of perfect inner peace Mm. where nothing can possibly be wrong. That is the look on... Serene. The serene look, thank you, on on the face of the Millicent on the bus. It's... I I would say it's serene and maybe almost a little bit bemused because there's a tiny, tiny smirk. Yeah, there's 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 a bit of a smirk and she never looks down at the Millicent who's standing outside. Right. She's she's just looking, looking forward as though nothing is nothing is going on, nothing is wrong. Off into the distance. Yeah. And it is haunting. It is. Yeah. It is really it is well done. Very well done. And the music again at that point is is very much yeah. the same as it was when she saw herself in the mirror. Sound it's design kind of, is well done there as that well. That is yeah. the the tone that, mm-hmm. you know, oh hey, something happened. Um Millicent who is on the ground, uh, not on the bus. Right. She, she didn't actually collapse. Um, outside Millicent. <laughs> outside Millicent screams dramatically. Oh, yes. And runs back into the bus station. Of course. What else are you going to do? And then there's a bit of like a cut scene, and she is laying on the bench seat with her head in Paul's lap. Yeah, so I, I suspect, based on how it was cut, that there was another scene yeah. initially uh, filmed between her running back into the station and where we come back in. Mm-hmm. Um, only because of how it was cut. It feels it like was weird. something was cut from the episode, uh, which is, is not normal, but yeah. in this case, certainly, that is how it feels. It's a weird transition. Um, she does, in fact, have that cold rag over her head. Of course, she <laughs> needs it now. Shit just got real. And it appears to be closing time at the bus station, uh, where the custodian is talking to Paul. 
and so, you know she's she's not right like you know if she you know made the gesture like cuckoo you know like she's not yeah, the, the compassion is kind of gone something's a little point, off but she she's still being politer than most right so she leaves. shockingly and then uh the ticket agent guy is still there and Paul goes up then to find out when the next bus is. Yeah, which is like 7 o'clock tomorrow morning or yeah. some shit. so they're spending the night in the bus station. <laughs> if only they had. Right. And uh, it's at that point that he engages in conversation with the ticket agent, who I need to point out, their interaction is very different. Oh, yeah, no, he is... Because uh... it's man-to-man. <sighs> so fucking frustrating. Yeah. It's a perfectly reasonable conversation between two perfectly reasonable people about a perfectly reasonable topic. Yep. And it's the first time this ticket agent has sounded like a fucking human yep. through the entire episode. Pleasant, even. Gives him a suggestion. You know? Curl up. Take a nap. It's quiet around here. We turn the lights off. Gotta conserve energy. And then Millicent is awake and Paul tells her that he has a friend who has a car and they could probably get to Cortland this evening. Friend would be willing to come and pick them up and give them a ride. He's just going to go see if he can borrow the phone to call him. Yep. Again, Paul being a stand-up guy. So he goes. He gets on the phone. The very next thing we see... He is a cop car pulling up outside. Whips up outside. Running code three. Oh my god. This interaction. Now, listener, I know what you're going to say. Surely it can't be worse than any of the other interactions. They've all been so bad. Mm. Well, dear listener, let me tell you. Uh... The rest of the interactions in this episode seem perfectly fine, perfectly reasonable, compared to essentially acting like Millicent has already killed somebody. Like, they roll up, don't ask any questions, don't... Don't show ID. They they follow no protocol of any police of... Uh, probably any era in mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. Uh, before physically restraining Millicent and putting her in the back of the cop car. Basically shoving her in the back of this cop car. Never never ask her a question. Never confirm she is who Paul says she is. Never... They don't do anything. A dude called them and said, this person... I assume what he said is this person is sick and needs help, and the cops rolled up and yeeted her ass into the back of a car. Mm-hmm. And they drive away. Sirens, lights, blazing. And that, that's a wrap on Millicent Barnes for this episode. We don't see her again. I don't want to be on a soapbox for this entire episode about uh, all of the things wrong with people. But holy shit. Her, so her theory 
that she talked to Paul about was a little bit too out there for him. He couldn't quite accept it. it was like, yeah, she's she's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Hundred percent. Yeah, and he, he couldn't wrap his brain around it. Why he made the call? But I mean, if there's any redemption in this, it is in how the episode ends, where we leave off. It it, it is the first time that it. It is the first time that it feels like justice is served, right. which sucks yeah. because it is not justice that is served. No. It just feels good, and I don't think it's supposed to. And Millicent isn't even there to witness it. No, which, which is the worst part. Right, that's the worst part is that she would. I don't know that she would have enjoyed it, frankly. Uh, no, she would have been probably a little more freaked out. Now, you do bring up a good point. Um, We've, you've mentioned the, the theory that Millicent has. Mm-hmm. And the theory that she brings up and discusses with Paul is functionally multiverse theory. Mm-hmm. She, she, is, she is talking about two universes, two realities colliding, mm-hmm. and one of her from a different universe winding up in this universe or vice versa, however, however that worked out. Now I don't I don't know when multiverse theory was initially thought up. Um, I do I know it was William James. I know it was way before 1960, but I I don't know the specifics. Um, what I do know, or what I suspect, is that it could not have been a popular topic for American television. In 1960. Sure. At least I I don't think... Obviously, I wasn't there, but... As far as I can tell, this is the oldest piece of media published that I've ever come across that references multiverse theory. Although it doesn't... It's obviously not 100% accurate by any means. Sure. Um, And I don't think she actually uses the term multiverse. No. she, She doesn't. But specifically, but to my understanding, that is what she is referencing. At least, yeah, that's what it sounds like. And that's that's pretty. That feels ballsy. Yeah. Like that. That feels like somebody. Somebody got the grapefruits in, to to make that happen early on. And I don't. I don't have. I don't have like any profound information on that. I am just fascinated. By the fact that somebody was willing to... The idea of it. Yeah. yeah I, I honestly, I wish they would have well, I mean, credited. Isn't, isn't that kind of like an echo? Because the Twilight Zone is often itself described as the place between dimensions. Yeah, yeah. Where I mean, it's regularly referred to as the fifth dimension. And you and fall into what is now the Twilight Zone. Yeah, you've, you've fallen into the in-between. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I hadn't actually thought about that. The, the it was published in 1952. I was under the impression that it was much earlier than that. Uh, but it's not, not a horribly important. Uh, I could be wrong. It's happened. It'll probably happen again. I like that it was brought up. Uh, I like that they didn't just... I guess I'm, I'm kind of accidentally moving into my favorite moment. Yeah, go for it. Um, which is... <clears throat> it, is the, it is her bringing up that theory 
uh, her theory of, of universes colliding, mm-hmm. uh, creating the predicament that she's in. I appreciate that they didn't just say, well, it's the Twilight Zone, weird stuff happens, we don't need to explain this, this right. just is. Yep. Like, this is what's happening, accept it or don't, it's the Twilight Zone. Which there are, epi- there are plenty of episodes where that feels like all the information we get. Yep. is like, if you, if you want to put more thought into this, then your thought should stop at it's the Twilight Zone. Because it's cut and dry and this is what it is. Right. There's a lot of, of that. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't just assume it's the Twilight Zone. You know it's the Twilight Zone. You can just assume that this is happening because it's the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. It, they, they threw a theory out. Like, they threw one of the characters had a deeper thought then, oh boy, howdy, I'm alone in this town with mannequins. Mm-hmm. Let me order some fucking ice cream. Right. I appreciated that. Yeah, it was good. It's one of the, it's one of the things that really drives home the fact that I don't think Rod wrote it alone. Sure. Because it's, it, this episode is it's written complex. in a very not Rod Serling writing style, mm-hmm. um, which is not to take anything away from Rod. Love what he did. Sure. Huge fan. I, uh, you might know I'm on a podcast about a show he did. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's called Wander With Us. You should check it out. Okay. I started episode 20. Um, <laughs> 19. 19. 19. 19's fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it feels different mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. I would agree with that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really good spots. Mm-hmm. Most of which are Millicent. And the emphasis is different as well. Like just the entire styling of this episode and the way that it was filmed and, and the things that were focused on, it doesn't feel like a standard, I agree, doesn't feel like a standard episode. No, and it's, it's one of the things that I feel like they, they were really stretching their, their shooting uh, wings here because it's the first episode that takes place in a singular location. Mm-hmm. We are in a bus station. We go to the bathroom momentarily. We step outside the front door momentarily. But the entire episode is just in this, like, 60 by 60 foot room. Except for the ending. The very end is running down the street. Uh, I hardly count that. They should have cut that out. But all the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's in one room. And it's done really well. Yeah. I I think I would call that kind of general idea mm-hmm. my favorite part mm-hmm. yeah my favorite not really a moment it's kind of the the entire thing it, the the whole the fact that the whole episode it's the first time we really move away from the the format yeah in yeah. season one and I like that it's good it's a good departure it worried and me initially yeah. like my first time my first time through the seasons because I thought that it was going to be like oh I thought it was like a you know, first episode of Black Mirror was mm-hmm. very different from the rest of Black Mirror because obviously there was a different plan. It felt like that here, mm-hmm. and like they were planning on taking a different direction. I wasn't happy about that because I I liked, you know, the the, the format. The been so far. Um, obviously, I I started watching these in in the early aughts, not in nineteen fifty fucking seven. So it's not like I was going to have any effect so, on that anyway. You look really good for your age, let me just say. Yeah, yeah, it could. That that would be fantastic. You got some I am, I mean, turn of fine fluid. And yeah, yeah, no, it, I, I've been lying to you this whole time. I'm 73. <laughs> I'm 
I'm 73 and I look 40. I'm definitely not 32 that looks 40. Gross. Um. <laughs> it's only gross if you think about it. So, so they, don't. Yeah, it won't. I'm going to move on now. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> I like the ending. I like the ending in which Paul is outside and we initially just hear like the sound of loafers slapping pavement. Yeah, it's an unpleasant it's an unpleasant tone. Running with a very wide gate, it sounds like. It's very stiff soled. Yeah. And very uncomfortable sounding shoes. He looks up and he goes, Hey and he starts running and we see in front of him is himself. And this is a very creepy shot for me. Like this is when I think about this episode, this is this this is the shot this is that, that sticks moment. in my mind. Because his doppelganger then looks over his shoulder back at back at Paul and just is grinning. Yep. Just has this manic like we think crazy eyes, this guy had crazy grin. Yeah, no, it, it had a very uh if this episode, if it had turned out that this whole episode was the intro for a, like, psychological thriller... Yeah, absolutely. I would not have been surprised. Oh, no, not at all. Like, that would have been a pristine, thanks for coming to the theater and spending half an hour watching this. Yep. Now the movie starts. Right. Kind of moment. Yes. It would have been very good. Very, very good. Um, but if yeah, if anybody out there is, like, an f- uh, amateur filmmaker or even, like, a not-amateur filmmaker... Watch this episode. Yeah. See if you can do something with that. Yeah. Because I would pay to see that in theaters. Imitation. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Flattery or something. Something. Anyway, that is my that is my favorite moment. And it ends. It ends there. It ends there. That's our resolve for this episode. Which is not the worst resolve we've had. No. In, in 22 episodes, 21 episodes. It makes you uh, wonder. It, but it uh, it is a... So we just watched... Little peek behind the curtain here. Uh, we're re-recording episode twenty-one because technological issues. Uh, so we've already recorded this. We're doing it again. We've already recorded episode twenty-two, and in episode twenty-two, we reference or we we mentioned that the lack of resolve at the end of the episode is what one of the things that makes the episode so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the opposite. This is the opposite. Yeah. Like this feels like there. At least to me, this feels like there was a place for resolve. For sure. Like, I honestly, I, th- I think I would have preferred if the episode had ended with the bus driving away mm-hmm. and us just seeing Millicent take over Millicent's life. Yeah, leave Paul out of it entirely. Yeah, like, I, I think that would have been a, a better resolved uh, episode ending. It still feels like retribution. So. It, it certainly feels like retribution in a way that I feel like was deserved. Yeah. Uh, I again, I don't think that's what they were going for. No, but I it, think they were trying to pull out our heartstrings because good old Paul was now the victim of crazy. Yeah, but good for him. Yeah, good for Paul. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I love that for Paul. <laughs> uh, let's, let's give this thing a rating. Okay, yeah, okay. And and see if we can. Uh, yeah, let's give this a rating and and move move, move forward. I am. I'm going to give it a three. Despite what I like and what I don't like about it, the overall cringe, um, 
yeah, it's it's an episode of the Twilight Zone, even though it is a departure. We don't ever do half ratings, but if we did, it would be a three point five. If if we did half ratings, I'd be a little more, I'd be leaning towards four. Uh, but similarly, I'm gonna give it a three because yeah, it's it's good as good. Our dog is staring at me in the mirror. That was terrifying. Uh, it's good stuff is good. Yeah. It's bad stuff is bad. And it balances out to an episode. And a great resolution, I think. We will never agree on that, but that's okay. It, it is, it's an episode, I mean, it's an episode of The Twilight Zone. That's what it is. Like It's, it's an episode with a very rare resolve, is I yeah. think what we can agree on. Certainly. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was a departure, which was was nice. Refreshing. Uh, it was odd. <laughs> Sorry, she's still just mean mugging me in that mirror, and I'm not sure why. She doesn't do this. Not usually. She doesn't do this ever, but she's like, "Hi, hi, baby girl. You look no, you. I'm not not high. You come here." You look like you're about to jump out of that mirror and attack. That was terrifying. This is really bad timing for you to do that. Right? We're talking what? About like what actual? Mirrors. This is mirror image. Don't do that to me, dog. <laughs> oh, boy. Gee, Willikers, Callie. No. <laughs> so I'm giving it a three. You're giving it a three. That's a yeah, total of six, six for this one. This one gets a six. What's happening uh, next week? Next week is episode 22, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Now, I'm not going to give you a synopsis of this one because I don't want anybody listening to have an excuse to not watch it. What I will say is that I believe this episode, 22, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, revolutionized television and movies. That's, that's a statement. May and maybe not, uh, maybe not like a French Revolution kind of revolution. That's good because that's messy. Sure, Hollywood would have been a hard place to clean. No, uh, I I do believe that this that the monsters do on Maple Street had a much larger impact on Hollywood, and that than I think anybody gives it credit for. I, I think there are a lot of movies and TV shows that just would not have come to be was it not for the monsters to do on Maple Street. And I think that influence shows itself throughout the episode. Agreed. Um, it is a fantastic episode. Yeah. So good. Um, like I said, we've already recorded it. Uh, so it you won't have heard it yet. It's It'll be next week. Uh, but it, it's good. It's good. And it's good. <laughs> and it's good. Thank you for listening. Hold up. I've been Bethany. Hold oh, up. Are you going to plug something? I think we should plug something. Okay. I was going to put this one off, but I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to plug Mira Grant. Okay. Uh, she's an author, if you're not familiar. Fantastic author. Fantastic author. Um, a, a lot of great books, but specifically the News Flesh trilogy mm-hmm. and the Parasitology trilogy trilogy mm-hmm. both are very good and very good like length if you're a fast reader i am not a fast reader and they're still great i mean yes they're great regardless but like 
I am a fast reader, and I got through the first book in about two days. They're pretty good size, is what I meant to say. So they're they're pretty. Yeah, no, she she decent. she does not skimp on any aspect. Uh, the Newsflash trilogy follows a, a team of blogger reporters. Uh, throughout the zombie apocalypse during a presidential election, of all things. If you want to figure out how the fuck that works, you're going to have to read it. Um, and this Parasitology Trilogy uh, follows a, a character saved by a tapeworm implant. Uh, and they are both... I think I would. I think I would classify them as as thrillers. Sci-fi thrillers. Like sci-fi thrillers. She does her research, which is one of the oh, things that I absolutely so, love. So heavily. Because you can you can legit type in bits and pieces of these books into Google, and you'll have actual medical articles that come up. Based right before on, her book does. Yeah, based like, on the topics that she talks about. It's very 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 good. It's very good, and there's. She she mentions uh, at at the end of uh, the the last book from the Newsflash trilogy, Blackout. She mentions a couple of people that she worked with in uh, making sure that medical terminology and and some of the physics based things that take place would work, which included uh, there there's a a a chase that takes place on train tracks that they wanted to make sure made sense. So she got a friend and they went out and drove on some train tracks <laughs> to figure out how the how the rig handled. I didn't know that. And it's it's a very brief mention but it's the research done is incredible. They're both great series. Uh, I I 100% stand behind them. Mm-hmm. They they will be on my you know, you can take one book when you get lost on an island. I'm taking six, and I'll fight you for it. Fair enough. Like, I'll leave the food <laughs> behind and bring all six books. <laughs> There's probably coconuts or something, right? Yeah, probably. Huh. And if they're hardbacks, I could probably crack a coconut at least with one of them. There you go. Made with the plan. I like it. You got anything to plug? I... Books? Shows? Mm, the Newspaper stand. articles? Ooh, yes. Lay it on me. So... Amazon Prime, I just found out recently, has uh, Stephen King's The Stand. The series. The series. Not the movie. Yeah. See, and I haven't seen the movie. I have read the book. Uh, I didn't know there was a series. I also didn't. I, um, to be fair, I read the book, gosh, probably, probably 13 years ago. It's been a long time. And That's funny. It took me 13 years to read that book. <laughs> it, it took me a year and a half, in all honesty, to read it. Just because it, it was a little difficult to get through. But man, once it picked up, it was good. Um, and even though it's been so long since I've read it, um, watching this series, I started remembering characters. And you can kind of see where they bring certain things in and they've taken some creative um, A lot of creative liberties. liberties. Yeah, a lot of liberties. Specific characters, but it's very good. In a good way. Uh, it's something that I'm looking forward to because we only watched the first episode, so I'm looking forward to that continuing. 
It's good. Very good. Watch the stand on Amazon Prime. On that note, I've been Connor. Still Bethany. Still the world's greatest podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.